This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, good evening and welcome. Uh, my name is Patrice Petro. I'm director of the Carsey Wolf Center. Tonight, we're delighted to have writer, director, and producer Brad Silberling with us. He will join Emily Zinn, associate director of the center, in a discussion about his most recent work, Dash and Lily, an eight-part series recently released to great acclaim on Netflix. Brad Silverling is perhaps best known for directing feature films such as Casper, City of Angels, Moonlight Mile, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, and The Land of the Lost. As many in the audience know, Brad received his bachelor's degree in English from UC Santa Barbara, and as a graduate of the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television, where he earned his master's degree in production. He has been a strong supporter of the Department of Film and Media Studies in the Carsey Wolf Center. Just recently, he provided critical support for a new summer institute on our campus entitled Storytelling for the Screen. Launched just this past summer and continuing into next summer as well in 2021, the Institute is an advanced screenwriting workshop that focuses on writing for television. It is taught by the incomparable Wendy Jackson and James McNamara, with visits from industry guests, including, of course, Brad Silberling himself. Dash and Lily, as many of you know, is a romantic comedy and mostly a love letter to New York City. As one critic has written, it is as much a hopeful fantasy series as it is a charming romantic one, and not just because the series was filmed in New York in 2019, a year before Christmas in New York City will inevitably, inevitably look entirely different from years past. Dash and Lily spend most of their romance getting to know each other through a red notebook, which Lily planted at a bookstore, um, um, along with a set of clues for an intrepid uh, teenage boy to find and decode. Safely flirting from a distance, the two give each other elaborate dares to do throughout the city, thus proving their commitment to the experiment and ultimately giving each other tours of their favorite corners of New York. It is now my great pleasure to invite Brad Silberling and Emily Zinn to the screen. Howdy. Oh, thank you, Patrice, and welcome, Brad. Thank you very much for coming to discuss this series with us tonight. Oh, happy, happy to see you guys. My pleasure. It's a thrill. So I want to start out with the genesis of the series. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in making Dash and Lily and what attracted you to this project? Sure. Well, I'll give you... It's it's always fun to kind of learn a little bit about the anatomy of a project anyway, and then I'll I'll, I'll discuss the moment when I collided with it. Um, we're in such an interesting moment now with streaming, obviously, and there have been projects, there have been feature projects. My pal Scott Frank last week was talking about Queen's Gambit and, and feature projects that have either languished, haven't found their moment, and suddenly there's an opportunity with streaming to to, to not only bring life to the projects, but maybe bring a more proper storytelling platform. So the novel was originally, uh, it, it was optioned by Scott Rudin, who is always, I call him the dog catcher of great material. And Scott always has his hands on incredible material. And he had it as a feature and sat on it for quite a period of time. And so it was only when eventually, I think it was pretty apparent to him, he wasn't gonna make that movie that the rights became free. And Joe Trace, who is the writing showrunner of the piece, um, 
who's a wonderful talent. He's a, a new, what they call a baby showrunner in our business, meaning he is his first time actually sort of being in command of, of a show that he's going to supervise the writing for and, and all. Joe had been a, a playwright, is a playwright, incredible, uh, and has been produced on Broadway now a couple of times. And he found his way onto the writing staff, weird connection with me, of Netflix's series version of uh, a series of unfortunate events. Wow. So Daniel Handler, uh, who was brought in to, to work with that group, I, from what, what I understand from Daniel was that by the end of the first season on that show, the entire writing staff pretty much Daniel let go. And the only man left standing was Joe Trace, who was the baby writer in the room. It was his first, I believe, first television writing job. But Daniel found his skills and his ability, imagination, and collaborative quality really amazing. So uh, 21 Laps, which is a, a production company that produces Stranger Things, uh, old friend of mine, Sean Levy, they uh, wisely had sort of spotted Joe. They're developing a movie. And he had this connection with the material and basically said to them, if we can get Netflix to do this, wouldn't that be grand? Because yeah. rather than trying to concentrate it as a, as a feature, it really has this beautiful life of of, oh my gosh, are they going to meet? Are they going to meet? And wouldn't that fit beautifully into the form? So uh, they had agreed. And so enter me when that moment came that, that Netflix, Netflix does a great thing, I think creatively, which is they, they'll read a pilot script and then off of that script, they'll commit. And network television is the opposite where uh, scripts go through development, they get tossed and then maybe a pilot gets shot and then that goes through a whole dog and pony show but netflix will commit so they committed he opened a room exactly and so i got a call um and was sent to i was sent the first i think i was sent the first two scripts um and i obviously the closest i had never read the novel i knew nick and nora's infinite playlist by the the same novelists, which I thought was very charming. I'd never read the book, but I'd seen the film that Pete Sollett made. And so I thought, oh, okay, let's see. It may be a little bonbon. I, I'm not quite sure what it's going to be. And I just was taken with the voice. I was taken with the, the, I should say, a multiplicity of voices, because what struck me was not only the, the, the actual in the flesh voices of the characters, but also the personas that they were projecting in their writing. And that's what I found so enticing about the piece is you've got two young people in our mind, 17, who, even though they kind of consider themselves Luddites, they are lovers and students of the word, the written word. They love living in the strand. They, they feel like the books are their best companions don't connect well with others they still, in how they communicate, and this is what I found in the scripts that I read, how they communicate in their writing, it's not unlike social, not, I wouldn't say social media, but texting, which is what am I going to put across? How am I going to present myself? So I thought that was really exciting. I thought, wow, I'm in a way getting to play with four characters. <laughs> and so often if if you meet with producers, they they depending on what you do and who you are, the hope that maybe you'll come in and do the pilot 
unfortunately, I, I said to them when I met, I met Joe and Josh Barry, who runs television for 21 laps. I said, well, I have to do the first two because they're, they are the pilot. It's, it's you the, need them both. you need to get both voices. Yeah. It's the, he said, she said format and I'm selfish. I want to be able to create both worlds and I want to be able to help try to shape what those voices are when they're again, creating persona to each other. And so I just sort of laid out to them essentially what I thought that relationship, how it would be. And I also sort of presented them what I thought of as the challenges, which sometimes a writer won't think of. There's something that's not incredibly cinematic about people reading books and reading. Yeah, or writing. And I said, you know, and yet it's important. It's key in the storytelling. And so I, I, I know how to do that here, I believe. Um, I also know I need to be able to do something odd, which is I have to create chemistry between two people who aren't together and sharing a frame. They don't meet in person till the seventh episode, mm-hmm. which was really an interesting challenge. But I said, I, I, I think I know how to do that. And I'm also going to institute some, some methods of doing that in the production. Fortunately, we're probably going to hire a couple of newer actors so that you're not being charged by the hour or by the day, because I'm going to want to have each of them on set. And not at not every moment, but in certain key moments, I'm going to want to be able to not just have my script supervisor drone Lily's lines to dash. I want to have her tucked behind my coat. And when I tap her, have that voice be three feet from him and affect him as it would. Now she's still playing a part. She's playing the part of Lily on the page. She's not Lily on the screen. So I I said to them, there's a number of things I think I need to do to do this. And if you guys agree, then we we, we should take off and, and run. And I met the gang at Netflix and, um, you know, it's such an interesting thing because Netflix has now the corner on the Christmas market. You see all the marketing. They have Christmas movies, Christmas series, Christmas cookies. They got everything happening. And so what I, without sort of patting our backs, I said, you know, I know this is filling a niche for you, but I think it's going to be more than that. I think it's going to be something hopefully more timeless and more evergreen than just a good piece of Christmas programming. And so they, they, they were all really quite down for the, for the task, which was great. That's great. Yeah. I mean, so you're anticipating some of my questions here. You know, the next one I had was, I wondered about how you go about um, setting a tone in those first couple of episodes that get carried through this series. And in, per- in particular, what, um, what were some of the ways that you felt that you needed to establish the way the story was going to be told? I love the idea that you needed to establish those dialogue, that dialogue between those two characters by actually having them physically um, interacting with each other. But what were some other ways that you worked to set the tone for the rest of the series in doing those first two episodes? I'm always, I always try to, I always try to scribble down first reactions I have when I read. Um, and it's not just visual reactions for the sake of visual reactions, but I, I always know I, I'm going to have a pretty intuitive sense of something. And I try to spend the rest of it could be months or years trying to act on that initial impulse and hopefully be faithful to it. 
And what I felt that I wanted to somehow find and create visually with Dash is he's obviously, he's more, he's most comfortable around the edges. He's most comfortable sort of trying to create a sense of invisibility for himself. So I'm going to find a way to kind of keep him fighting to not be in the center of a moment, not be at the center of the frame. Um, I'm going to try to, even though I'm going to, the storyteller is going to arm wrestle with him. He's going to be somebody who's very, very happy. So I'm sitting back further with him. I'm having him sort of get swallowed up in environments um, and, and a sense of architecture. And those inform my choices when I'm doing the pilot, when I'm scouting, because this was a show that we shot in New York, all on location with the exception of we created Lily's apartment, Mm -hmm. um, which we knew we would probably have to do for a number of of reasons. Um, And we did end up recreating two aisles of the Strand. We shot in the Strand for two overnights, which are never fun. And they they kept switching the rules up on us where initially we were going to be able to start shooting around 10 at night and wrap around six in the morning. And then suddenly we weren't allowed to walk in the door until 10 at night. Uh. Oh, oh, and by the way, you can't bring in any lights ahead of time or have the art department. So it's like the circus arrives to put up the tent and the net and all of that. And suddenly you're not really starting until midnight. So I said to the producers, the line producer, I said, this is all great fun. So when are we going to shoot the part that we're going to build back on stage? Cause we're going to do it. <laughs> and they were horrified. And I was like, it's just the reality. So but anyway, you need that much of the strand. You can't, can't keep closing the strand. down. <laughs> you can't. And, and the hours were prohibitive. And so that's actually what we did. Um, but, but again, back to choices. So I, I knew I wanted um in terms of, I, I was hoping for a, a color palette that again was oddly reciprocal and you'd find domination in his story of certain tones where there's hints of her and mm-hmm. vice versa. And that's the great advantage of having multiple scripts in hand too and not guessing where you're going. And then with Lily, I just I just knew she was going to be somebody because so much of her personality doesn't really come out in the narration initially she's very she's very presentational and seductive in the narration she's so much more cigarette in hand and in command and then you meet her in the second show and you're like oh my gosh okay this is an entire and so I knew I wanted to have her again very she was often going to be right smack in the center of her frame um, and was going to basically be a boundary pusher Uh, and so I have instincts about that. I have instincts about who, who just just all of, of staging mechanics, who, who's somebody who can't sit still, who's somebody who, who doesn't like, again, to attra- attract attention to himself by moving too much. And all of these kind of begin to take form. And so as you're doing a pilot, and in this case, the two sides of the pilot, that becomes, again, hopefully not a, restriction for the for the, anybody coming in afterwards but hopefully a, a a little bit of a fun inspiration and and a, a, at least a roadmap they're going to go off and still have to bushwhack depending on the problems they have but at least they have that and also more importantly and this was a unique situation because the the production 
It's eight episodes. So the other two directors were hi- were hired, and in a couple of cases, were already prepping while I was shooting. Oh, okay. So it was great because I got to sit in sidebar with them, not only walk them through some of the choices I was making, but specifically with the actors, I got to basically share with them strategies because I'm meeting these actors in a work situation for the first time I had, I'd had a little bit of rehearsal time with them, but I got to, you always get to see how the actor works. And so I, that, that's a case where I feel incumbent upon myself to share whatever nuggets I can with the other directors. Um, so there's a visual language you're hoping to create. There's a performance language. There's a musical language. Joe loves music as well. So that part of it was a blast. And we would sit and swap thoughts and titles on, on songs and what fit and what didn't. Um, and so all of that is sort of the the stew. They really are, pilots are funny. They really are, they're like microwave movies. You're still making a movie. You're building it from the bottom up in less time, shorter schedule, but all the key choices are going to hopefully sustain. And and that's the, that's the privilege of the pilot process. And so with something like this, you've kind of set up the parameters and the guide rails, and then you just sort of pass it off to the next directors. How involved did you stay in the project as the other directors were shooting their parts? Well, what was exciting was, like I say, if it had been a very lengthy production schedule, had they had they had it been an hour, uh, like Scott Frank was describing the seven hours, seven hours, each of those were X number of days. If, right. if I might not have had as much engagement with the other directors, but in this case, one of them was much newer. Um, Pamela, uh, who directed the third and fourth episodes, and I thought did a lovely job. She's still, she's been directing for a few years, but it was still greener. And so I made sure to have her come and hang with me while I was shooting as much as she had time to do. We emailed quite a bit. And again, I'm sharing my thoughts. And then I tried to keep an open line of communication with them both and a venting communication because it's hard for directors anyway. And I wanted to hear their frustrations as they were shooting. I watched their dailies. I would make sure to kind of give them a shot in the arm as I was seeing choices they were making, or if I saw some issues that I could see that they were having. So I kind of kept a line of communication uh, with Pamela and a little less so with, with poor Fred was having to, he did did four. That was never the original intention. Um, There was a, there were some scheduling issues on the show. So he was racing as fast as he could. Um, But I did that. And then, and then I had said to Joe, uh, Trace, again, for anyone who doesn't understand the show running process, you are running, if you have a writer's room, you're running that room and you are sort of helping orchestrate, but getting as much good input as you can from uh, a room. You're banging out the storylines. People are going off and writing. Once you're in production, um, you are hopefully along for the ride, hopefully happy with what's going on in post-production. Once the director finishes. So I, I finish when the editor has an assembly, I come in and I reshape that and I make it so that I feel proud of what that is, share it with Joe in this case, and then any adjustments or if he is impatient with a line that he never liked or whatnot, 
then that's something that that so he and I then would jump into the cutting room. Now, granted, this was virtual. It was crazy because right. it, you were editing this after the COVID lockdowns all started, right? It, was, it straddled. I started uh, my assistant Karina, who's on here with us. We started virtual before the lockdown, just by nature of my wife as an actor, and she had to work. So I had to be back out here in Los Angeles. Post was all in New York. So we were doing this sort of post on the computer, which was, it's gotten better. I think it was a little dodgy when we were getting started. But so Joe and I would, we would be able to virtually work together with the editor. And then the episodes following mine, I said to him, you avail yourself to to me as much or as little as you want. And, um, but we had a great working relationship. So I would get those director's cuts. And then I would basically sort of make suggestions to him and then work through subsequent cuts uh, as well. So that you try to keep, yeah, it's an interesting animal series television. Um, You can see when something really sticks out and doesn't feel like it belongs, but you, you try to make it feel of a whole, like a good book. Um, And so this was a, it was a, pleasurable way of trying to keep a, a real hand. And even when I had to suddenly become bi-coastal. Right. Uh, so yeah, it worked though. It was great. That's great. Um, so another question I have about this series is, you know, you talked about the fact that we've got these characters who are reading and writing a lot and developing these personas that they're, you know, reading their own words, reading each other's words. Um, and obviously that involves a lot of voiceover. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the advantages and the challenges of using voiceover in a project like this. Yeah. Well, it's it's an incredibly, obviously endlessly creative tool because we know voiceover and if, if it's narration, it can be reliable or unreliable. If it's in this case, voiceover, of written words, it can be again, persona creation versus reality. It can be, it it can be so many things. Again, shockingly, you'd be amazed how often, especially in series, the director may not be around when a lot of key voiceover is gonna get recorded, hence not directed or not directed at least by the director, which I always find just shocking and which I loathe. And so what I make sure to do in this case, we did, we, I think we rushed to at least get some of our kind of even scratch versions recorded, frankly, for me, selfishly to get them in the performance and that voice so that it would begin to get ingrained. Then we did a sort of more formal version of that. The exciting thing in the challenge in directing with those voiceovers in mind is, and and I felt like I had a set of muscles that really got developed. I've had movies with a degree, Lemony Snicket, obviously, Mr. Snicket is never seen except beautiful Jude Law and Silhouette, but he has narration throughout the film, but it's rarely a scene partner. And the, the narration, the voiceover in Dash and Lily is, it's, it's, it's truly a dance. And so it's choreography. It really is choreography. And 
the whole idea being if, if two people are singing a duet and one takes a verse, the other person can't check out and go have a drink. They have to stay in the performance. <clears throat> and this was what I tried to impart to the actors when we met. And I said, what's interesting, and it's going to be an extra level of work for you. We're going to have to make sure that you have a continuing rich and interesting performance that's going on. And I have to be part of that too with my camera so that I'm not forced to always cut. I want to be able to see you begin to read that, have that hit your body, how you respond and not just have to kind of do a bunch of cutting. And I, it is a set of muscles that really, I think I got to further developed in Jane the Virgin, which I did and produced and, and in Jane, we, we just had it down where we had, in that case, a full-time, the schedule was too nuts and I couldn't have each of the other off. You know, in most cases, it's, it's Gina's character who would be doing the voiceover and Gina was already shooting on, in almost every scene. So she couldn't always be standing there off camera because it would be herself. Uh, so we had a, an actor who was full-time on set with us so that I could dictate the speed of that read, mm. the intention, even though it was going to get replaced later, so that in real time, Gina's performance or whoever's performance, sometimes it's another character in that show who doesn't know that they're being described, but they're having their own moment. For those things to, again, hopefully elegantly flow, Right. It, I say it's choreography. Yeah, and so that placeholder there to make that dance work, right? Yeah, and the timing and intention, because if otherwise, if if you again, I not to, I, I love script supervisors and not to trash on them, but you can have somebody who I had a fantastic, uh, great script supervisor in Atlanta, the lost who was from Texas, Kate. But Kate just talks so slow. <laughs> And he was fantastic. if Kate had been doing my off camera, none of the timings would have ever worked, you know? And so you really, again, that's why directors are control freaks. You need to be able to control cadence and, and intention, all of that. And it does affect the other actors. Right. So you can't make everyone text in suddenly. Yeah, no, <laughs> we can't just open up timings. And so it's, 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 and every and initially it's very awkward for the actors because it's like they feel like they have egg on their face. It's like, okay, wait, I'm standing here waiting for the narration to be done. And well, of course, if we're doing it right, that won't be the case because you have a whole moment and a full story you're still in the midst of. And you're only ready to speak when that moment's done. It just so happens to time out with the end of this narration or this voiceover. So very much, and, and I again, it's something I'm quite confident in. So I'm able to help put it together on set with the actors fairly quickly but the camera is a very big part of that too because as I was saying nothing's a whole lot so where I'm situated what the audience is seeing of somebody reading even if it's on the back of their head it's like if their ear is starting to turn red because they're blushing with what they're reading that's going to tell me a lot about their experience emotionally reading this passage so that was something else I tried to talk to the other directors about, which is don't just lock the camera down in a spot and wait for the voiceover to be done. How is it affecting this actor and where should you be with your camera? Right. And that just creating that sense of intimacy that way, which I think the show really does effectively that you feel so close to these characters 
because you're watching them interact with one another through this notebook. So yeah, yeah. it's really fascinating. So that's, that's the, the dance. So I'm also wondering that the series hue is quite close to the novel, but one real key change uh, was the fact that um, you've got more racial diversity in the series, right? That Lily's Asian and Boomer's Black. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how that change came about and what kind of impact do you think it really had on the way the series works? Well, I, what's really exciting, it was almost a two-step process. I'll tell you that where we ended up is not where we started even when we were beginning to start to prepare the pilot. I love the fact, and the good news is if you're paying attention and you're listening, any change affects everything. That's the beauty of it. Um, and so I think about all of the ritual, the, the, the Japanese culture, the, the shoes by the door when Lily comes in where their tree, it still kicks her shoes off in the pile. The, the really lovely sequence in the temple in the, the last episode. So that's a Japanese family. So that comes, that came back to the actress because we, what we knew was, and this was a decision that Joe described to me for him was early in the process that yes, the book was written years ago and yeah, it's an Italian family and his best buddy is not African-American and, so not only trying to be sort of racially blind, but actually leaning into the diversity of that city was really important to him. There was a writer, Lauren Moon, who was in the writer's room, who was Korean. And so who was incredibly helpful in terms of just, again, sharing details of, of culture, of being second generation, but what, what's the first generation experience in the household what is it like with those grandparents? So the character as written in the script that I read first was Korean. Mm. And so when we got to the casting process, we were searching for um, Korean characters. And it was really interesting because Netflix had a very successful film, uh, which I think they've now done sequels to, where an actress was supposed to be Korean, but actually was Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. And they got into a really interesting situation where, where there, was, there was a fair bit of audience that frankly, it was not a concern to them. And there were some people who were really unhappy about that. And so it was a thing that we talked about where we had the freedom, let's find the right actor. Let's not, it would be fantastic if there's that Korean actress who's age appropriate, who we just think is the one, but let's not, again, let's not reverse engineer. Let's, let's give ourselves, if we all in agreement, let's give ourselves that gift. And so that's what we did. And so it was really funny with Midori, who was on the later side of an entrant. She was not sort of in the first wave of people we met. When we met her and read her, she was in New York. We were still out here. And then eventually we um, met her in New York when it was pretty apparent that it was going to be her, it was like, we can do this. We can now make this change. So we waited on casting her parents, on casting her grandfather and casting Mrs. Basile. Those were all, and it was making some, <laughs> making some people at Netflix nervous because we were getting closer to production. But 
then once we did, and Midori was as helpful as anybody about, because she truly has had that, that's her been her upbringing. She's got super traditional grandparents and she's, a, she's from a biracial family. And so again, perfect uh, print for that. And likewise, Boomer, which is again, again, he could have himself been Asian. He could have been Latino. It's just, it happened that we thought, okay, just here, here they are on the Lower East Side. Let's look at a number of different actors. And so we, we read African-American actors. We read just a number of different actors of color. And there were only a couple that really kind of had our hearts in, in the end, Dante won the day. So that, that, yeah, that, that was a change that I, it just made sense today. And and it's wonderful that you were able to then reverse engineer that family from your lead actor, because it's just, I mean, she's just so obviously the heart of the show. She's just so good. She just, just takes you away, you know, and, and I had never, well, it's actually funny. She still gives me, I, I thought I had never seen her. It's I'm, I, the biggest waste of money in my casting room are those beautiful glossy headshots with all of the resumes. I never look at them. I don't sit and read about who they trained with, what their other nine movie. I just am bad. I just want to engage with who walks in the right. room. And so Midori's, the bulk of her work uh, has been on stage and she was in a production of a play called the wolves uh, and was just evidently a standout and tremendously respected by her peers. And she came in and just was not, again, she was just not a Disney kid. She just was really interesting. And, and we just loved her and things were starting to gel with Austin. And that's when you really start to try to see what that's going to look like together. But I didn't know her, which to me was an advantage. And so at some point we're actually making the show and I can't remember if she brought it up or somebody brought it up, but suddenly it was brought to my attention that she was in a movie called uh, good boys, which was like a kind of R rated comedy with a couple of, you know, three young boys who get in over their depth and the sort of baddies of the movie are two teenage uh, like somebody's sister and her girl and her friend and and they're out to try to like procure some drugs. I can't remember the storyline, but Midori was one of the two heavies, if you will. And she was great. And I was, and I remember sitting with her. I'm like, was that you? You were amazing. She, she couldn't believe that I, A, I didn't know that it had been her, that I would have hired her without knowing that. It was hysterical. And so from that point on till this day, I always say, hey, have you ever heard of this movie called Good Boys? I hear it's really good. She's always like, would you stop? Um, so, but yeah, she she's just, she's just everything. And, and it was exciting to watch her grow because that, you know, the first day, the first day on any movie, any pilot is so anxious making for actors. And she does have more stage experience. And so not even just modulating, but, but trying to get past a series of feeling like an imposter. Like I don't know the expectations of this medium was a, a, a really great journey to, to, 
be sort of step in step with her on and she just did an incredible job. Well, and this really seems like something that you enjoy doing, sort of figuring out how to mentor young actors like the ones it's you were working the, with. It's the best. It's the yeah. best because they, they, you know, they're not locked in their ways yet and they really want to do so well. And it's the most vulnerable position to be in, to be an actor to begin with. And again, I live with one. So I, I so appreciate that, that, journey and so that's the one thing I always try to do is look them in the eye at the beginning say I, I'm you're safe I'm, I'm not gonna let you fall on your face you just trust that if you can trust that we're gonna be good um so yeah it's amazing well you you already mentioned that most of the show was shot in New York City and in her introduction Patrice talked about the fact that this show really is a love letter to New York City so what what did you want to capture about the flavor of New York City in the way you were putting together those first couple of episodes? Well, there's such an interesting tension to it. Well, yeah, first of all, you look at it now, hello, and it's crazy. That was just a year ago. No. And it seems like another era. It's amazing. Um, I, 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 so here's what's interesting for me. I've only shot, this was, I, I like to say, this was really the first time I've ever shot in New York. I did shoot there twice for like two days uh, years ago on NYPD Blue where the first season, first two seasons maybe, we would actually go back to New York for a week uh, about every 10 episodes and shoot specific scenes so that the show had that verisimilitude. But those were lightning trips. And so I never had the experience of really, really shooting in New York. And so I think I both had, I, I sort of had the advantage of the sort of outsider's perspective because the tension is you are, yes, you, you're, you're creating a show for the holidays for the audience that's looking for a breath and some wonderful romance and escape. And so the idea for me was, yes, what does it feel like when you are living there, when that's your home? And you're inside that. And what when you step inside the holiday market or when you head into Macy's or where. So I'm going to both appreciate the sort of visual splendor, but I'm hoping that I'm coming in tied to the characters in a way that's going to inform it more than just shooting postcards. Um, because so then more it, of their experience of New York was what you were trying. As much to as I could try to make it sort of experiential. And we had a real challenge too, because I remember when I first met with everybody, knowing the entire series is set basically in that holiday period. And they had scheduled to start shooting in early, mid-October. And so my question was, great, when am I going to come back to shoot the parts that you're going to need me to do? And they kind of looked at me and blinked and I said, yeah, you, you can't afford to recreate the Union Square holiday market or the or Macy's or you can't. And you can't make Christmas in New York. <laughs> yeah, uh, unless you're just doing like bad cutaways. But that doesn't, again, I want to, what makes it special to me is, I mean, that's like, I give them such great credit. There's, there's the whole finest, final Jonas Brothers concert, which of course, you know, Nick was going to be, so that was all sort of predestined. But the idea that that's a backdrop to a personal scene 
and that they actually did it that way, that they're really there. They staged a concert, they did that, but it's really about these friends having them. I thought that was fantastic. And that's, so that was the goal. And that, that goal meant that you just couldn't, again, just shoot cutaways. Um, so we did. So I came, I, I shot in October. I think I wrapped the first two episodes before Halloween. I came back uh, a year ago last week and I shot for, for a number of days for all the big, you know, we, I remember sitting there watching the truck deliver the huge tree at Washington Square Park, waiting for it to be done so that we could shoot like hours later. I mean, it was, it was kind of that we had to wait for the city to Christmas kind of Christmify itself right? Um, to, to, to have the experience that we wanted. Uh, but it was great for shooting in New York. It's awesome because it's just, I, it's the closest thing to film school I've ever had. You're not going to control that city. It's going to have its way and you're going to have to work with it. So working with a certain amount of serendipity. Oh man. It's like, no, we're timing ourselves to the traffic light. It's not like they're holding traffic. You know, if this was the $125 million movie version, it might be a little different, but, but I love that. Cause that goes back to like the super eight spirit. It's like, okay, the lights red, let's go. And we <laughs> run into the street and the little thing of Lily crossing the street. It's our, in the pilot, it's our first glimpse of her, her red, uh, Chuck's walking over to Two Boots Pizzeria for the first time. That's us waiting for the light. I've got a steady cam guy in a little like red wagon being pulled. I'm like, go, go, go. And we're like out the street. And we have to get out of the street in time not to get hit. That's just super fun. So that was an experience and and learning how important in New York, PAs, production assistants are always keeping it in New York there they're what keep people from staring in your lens the whole time because they can't stop the flow of traffic. So you kind of plant people to sort of be amongst everybody and kind of distract and try to keep. So it's a whole different art form. It's pretty cool. Crowd control. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Creative, creative crowd control. Oh, um, well, I want to be sure we had a chance to talk to about music in this series because you made reference to this earlier. So, you know, music's so important. There's the moment where Dash reads the lyrics to Joni Mitchell's River over the mic. Um, but also, um, you know, highlights for me were, you know, your use of Christmas rapping by the waitresses and Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues, which is one of my very favorite songs. So can you talk a little bit about the choices you guys were making about the music in this series and, you know, yeah, absolutely. That well, that's the tone. Sure. I mean, what's always an interesting tension is the, is money, uh, which is that, that, that there's that. And what's interesting is I, without sort of betraying secrets, this show was done very reasonably. What's up on that screen and what you hear is a bit greater than the sum paid for it. And so the challenges were really picking and choosing uh, music license moments, right? what those were going to cost. We knew that Netflix was very invested in this having the fullest feeling that it could. So there was that. Um, J- Joe does, it's funny, in my music heavy, or I should say track heavy movies, I do the thing you're never supposed to do. I write them into the script. You know, you just set yourself up for, you know, a trap. I believe it. <laughs> but, I, but I do. And the good news is in a weird way, you put it in the universe and then you work it and you start to write the artists and you 
you do everything you can. Two key tracks he he had written in the pogues he had written in, um, and really that th that whole kind of coda that's sort of beautiful. He really hoped, and so I said to him because again earlier experience for him. I said the day I met him, these are licenses you need to start locking down now, because in many cases you do have to make real entreaties to the artists. You have to write them, talk to them. Um, talk them down a little bit in terms of the money sometimes if that happens and stuff he'd written the pogues in and Joni, and the only thing with Joni is if you think about it we there's Joni when when dash obviously performs it there's Joni through her earbuds right. uh in episode two there was one other usage i'm trying to remember that we were trying to sneak in that we we didn't get to um but those, so those were two key tracks that that were literally written into the script, and Joni was not a sure thing, and that was a little frightening because obviously we were we got to shooting that sequence of the strand. We knew by the day, but it was close because I was like, "Boy, you're gonna have to have a whole other attack." So we started trying to think of another attack that Wait, we. Wait, there's nothing else you could read over the mic and have no. the same effect as reading River. No, no, just reading like a bad Christmas poem would have just been. No. So anyway, that thankfully worked out. But then from there, it's this is why I love the cutting room. The cutting room, as opposed to the pain of the wonderful pain of shooting, you you know, with a good assistant editor, if you if you sit and pitch each other thoughts about tracks. Um, you just go ahead and you lay them up against and, and it's like a beautiful derby of what do we love, you know? And yeah, the waitress's song is just like, and it's capturing character always. It's capturing spirit and character. And to me, that whole sequence in, in her spirit and her excitement and just the giddiness of the holiday for her are so wrapped up. Bring the tree. I mean, yeah. <laughs> just such a great moment. Yeah. And then the, in moving into series, some of the, the live stuff, I mean, I, I will profess to never having been aware of Klezmer Punk until, you know, I was talking with Joe and that that was going to become an actual story element and a key story element and then being able to have it get performed and yes, pre-recorded and playback, but um, fantastic. And so yeah. what's, what's I, I think a real victory for the show is what was accomplished again with a very tricky budget. The funniest thing is the one that I remember saying to, to uh, 21 laps, they couldn't afford last Christmas and I, and I remember laughing saying, because we did something nefarious, which was when we shot the makeup, hair and wardrobe tests, which are always usually the most dry exercises and you send them in and they're awful. We like, I've always had this love of trying to make something special and they were really excited. So we made essentially a video and we shot all the makeup, hair pieces, but we created this really lovely, fun, almost a relationship between the actors and la and use last christmas oh. and it was like they're not going to want to pay for it later but eventually they're going to shake their fists and they're going to do it so those things you can kind of try to build in nice nice so the, the music works its way in in a whole bunch of different ways yeah absolutely well, so I need to turn to the audience questions in a sec, but the last question I have for myself is, I know my experience of watching this series was very much shaped by 
the strangeness of our present moment and COVID. Um, and I wonder um, for you both how, you know, revisiting this material during COVID, how it, how it affects you and also how you think it's been affecting your audience. I mean, it just feels like this is a very different atmosphere than you expected the series to come out in. So can you talk a little bit about having this come out during COVID? Yeah, and and uh, and I think um, doing some of the post production, we got glimpses. I remember being on the phone with Joe and with Josh Berry from Twenty One Laps the week we saw the lockdown coming, mm. and that we were suddenly realizing, wow, okay, today we can't be in the same room because we're just. But we thought we might be able to be next week. Oh, we're going to have our own sort of long distance romance in the post-production process, it's going to become a sort of distant virtual experience to finish this. I never met the sound mixer face-to-face. I was mixing with him for days. And so it wasn't Zoom, but it was a version of Zoom. And so, it, yeah, we, we, so we sort of in real time made the transition. I do look at it and um, it's, it's, lovely to see it's bitter it is a bit bittersweet right now but i think in a way that the characters reach it because they're not together until episode seven because they're separated emotionally in time and space there must be something about that that's reassuring right hopefully the audience because even if you're in the same city it's like if i was living in brooklyn and i had a friend on the upper west side i might not back in the spring you wouldn't have seen that person no. You would Zoom and you'd call, but you probably wouldn't have seen them until the summer. And so in a way, maybe we were kind of anticipating the experience just by nature of the story obstacles, I guess. Right. It feels it feels both a little bittersweet and like this lovely time capsule of like, oh, yes, there was this moment where we went in crowds and we were in restaurants with other people and people sang near other people and that, yeah. that scene where she goes around and drinks sips of everyone's drink in the bar and it's like yeah. oh no <laughs> I know every, every bit of you or I just think about the number of extras in our in our uh, you know market scene the holiday market scene yeah. I'm like oh my god who you know contact tracing nightmare you no. know <laughs> can't do that right now so no. okay let's turn to a couple of questions from our audience um So our first question is from Sonia, who says, what was your experience working on the CW's dynasty? Um, And what were some of the complexities or benefits of adapting the show from the 1981 dynasty series? It's the moment of of it, isn't it? It's so funny. The, yeah, the CBS studios uh, controlled dynasty, even the dynasty when I was in college was on. So I, I, I was the guy across the hall who wasn't watching Dynasty back in college when I was in Santa Barbara. I was at FT, I was at Francisco Torres my first year. And I just remember everybody kind of gathering for Dynasty. And oh my gosh, it was hysterical because I was like, what is this? Um, So again, I think being a stranger to a new land is a really helpful thing as a storyteller. And that's exactly what happened where I, I came in and I just, I sort of knew enough, but I just looked at these sort of raw relationships and I just thought it's, it's perfect. It's just a 
family. It just so happens that the, that the income is far too great. So again, you get to kind of take every bit of what's essential to dysfunctional families and then just amplify it. And so that was, so I, I had a ball, I had a ball. Uh, Liz Gillies, who's the, plays Fallon uh, on the show, I just think is one of the most talented young women. I just was emailing her this weekend because I, I remain a producer on that show as well as Charmed. And in the case of Charmed, Jenny Ehrman and I, who had done uh, Jane the Virgin together, the studio came to us and said, you'll never quite believe this, but our single most valuable asset is uh, Charmed in our library. It, it's, it's the one that's sold furthest in the world. So if you guys can find your way into it somehow, that feels to you contemporary and makes sense, um, do so. And so it took us about a year and a half while we were still dealing with Jane, but then off we went. And so it's like getting to throw a music catalog at another artist. I mean, that's the thing I love about the reboot thing. If you're going to go and do a, a shot by shot slavish copy, then not of interest. But when you get to just, it's deconstructing the, 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 what was the core idea? How do you turn it on its ear? Um, I, it's, it's, that, that part's exciting. So those are my, I mean, the, the funny thing is people forget Jane. Jane was a Venezuelan uh, melodrama. So Jane was an actual series prior and then just got completely reinvented um, as well. So awful fun, just great, great, great fun. And I did in in watching in watching Dash and Lily, it did feel like there were a lot of um, elements of the tone from Jane that you'd brought in there that it's similarly light on its feet. In this yeah, movie. that that I, I I wanted that for the characters. Jane, I always thought was a musical without music, and though yeah. there was wonderful music in it, there's just that sense of I mean, it's the most. And this is my friend Jenny Ehrman. It's the most ADD show. I think that was television at its time. We would shoot in a half, in an hour, and which we, in, in, on the CW was really 42 minutes. We'd often have 72 scenes. Oh. You'd come to work and, and on a call sheet, that you know, your day's work, we'd have 12 scenes because the storytelling is that bad. And again, you can just throw it at the wall or you can really try to make it all, you just want to make it a dance. And then it was, great fun as long as you've been very hard to do but super fun if it worked <laughs> right right yeah. no it sounds sounds a little overwhelming <laughs> um so i have another question here um could brad provide his recommended screenplays for young screenwriters to read to learn their craft oh my gosh yeah, I, I I can just throw out a few, and I mean these are just again personal favorites. Um, I, I would say go take a look at Mamet's script for the verdict. Take a look at Goldman's script for all the president's men. Go back and look at Sturgis's script. God, which one? I mean, a, a number of my that's my. My sort of, I have a, one of those beautiful compendiums of Preston Sturgis scripts. When I want to be reminded of the magic of movie storytelling that's emotional and funny um, and has all of those elements, uh, I'll go back and read Sturgis. Um, 
Oh boy. Um, so many great ones. I'll, 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 I'll come back at you with a more thorough list. Well, but we've got some assignments to, to get good. us started here. So good. that's good. That's yeah. good. Well, Brad, this was just such a delight. It was great fun to watch your show and great fun to chat with you about it. So I oh, hope we my, can do this again sometime. My pleasure. My pleasure. I'm really, I'm glad we got to, and I'm glad everyone's had a chance to take a look. It's, it was, it was great fun. And as you say, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad it's out there now. Yeah. And we'll see you in the theater next time. Yeah, there we go. All right. Fantastic. Thanks so much. All right. Okay. Take care and have a good night. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.